0: Uh, But if you're just joining us, especially if you're just joining us for the first time, you've caught us in the middle, actually directly in the middle of a summer series on the question of what kind of church do we want to be? I've tried to pitch to you that that's not always the easiest question to answer. It, It could be actually quite complicated when you really begin to make the hard decisions about what we're going to actually focus on and what God has given us as a vision to do. Um, But I thought that I would at least let you in on some of the things that come out of me most naturally when someone asks me that kind of question. So we began in our first week talking about being a place of the book. That everything that we do has to be built upon the foundation of the Bible because of what the Bible claims about itself. The last two weeks we've talked about being a place of grace because if what God says about our condition is true, then we need a miraculous salvation that only He could accomplish for us to be a place of grace. Well, this week what I want to look into is the question of being a place of change. How do we deal with change? And I was reminded while I was preparing for this of uh, one of my favorite uh, Christopher Nolan movies that came out a number of years ago called Inception. A bit of a weird, kind of a mind-bending tale Uh, about a small group of uh, cyber-terrorists who have found that the best way to sort of change people is not through the end of the barrel of a gun, but rather they found a way to sort of crack into people's dreams. And once they're there, they plant this simple, singular idea that once the victim sort of wakes up from it, they feel as if they have changed very naturally and come to it on their own. So I want to ask you a question this morning. Have you thought about what it means for you to change? Now notice, I don't think that I have to ask, does anyone ever think about changing? Um, I I think one of the things it means to be human is to look at yourself and to think, I wish I could change that. I don't like this part of me. I wish I didn't behave that way. I wish my life was in a different spot. Change is on the forefront of everyone's thought, it seems. But what's not so apparent is how best we go about getting to that change. In other words, what sort of uh, uh, ways have you worked on to try to bring about change in your own life? A number of years ago, I heard Tim Keller preach a sermon talking about this very question. And he said, you know, culturally speaking, there tend to be three ways in which people sort of deal with trying to change. The first way is what he calls the, the mechanistic way. The mechanistic way is sort of the adoption of, of, of a correct procedure. You have to find the right three-step plan. And once you sort of engage in that and sort of uh, lock into it, change comes about. This is, the, this is the plan of the diet and exercise books. Uh, every BuzzFeed article that I seem to see starts with, you know, three ways to a better life, you know? Five simple ways to get what you've always wanted. The problem with these things is they rarely hold out any kind of long-lasting sort of change, do they? They tend to be fine for a time, perhaps, but does it really produce, produce life change? The second kind of change is what Keller calls the moralistic approach. The moralistic approach talks about a new set of rules, you know, the problem that I've been having is, is I've just not been following these rules. And so you kind of commit yourself with a brand new sense of extra willpower to becoming different, sort of doing better this time. The moralistic approach is the, uh, is the uh, New Year's resolution model of particular change in people's hearts. But again, the, the failure in a moralistic view uh, not only fails to produce long-lasting change, but it also results in a lot of shame. A lot of embarrassment for yourself of how you're doing. The final form of change is what Keller calls the mystical view. There's the mechanistic, the moralistic, and the mystical view. The mystical view is where you're sort of assuming that out there uh, is some sort of um, hidden, uh, powerful force. Maybe it's out there. Maybe it's inside of me. That as soon as I tap into it, this this wash of mysterious sweeping changes kind of comes over me. I don't really know what happened. Everything was different after that. All that you needed was a, was, was a yielded spirit, perhaps, or maybe a, a willing mind to be open to the things of God. I, I actually went through a stage that could be described this when I was in college. And again, in addition to the failure to create long-lasting change, one of the hard parts about the mystical view is how quickly it can lead to burnout. Burnout. Because it's very difficult to sustain that kind of emotional intensity for that long period of time. So how are you doing? <laughs> when you look at your own life, at the things that you had hoped or are hoping to change, do I catch you this morning in a moment of feeling pretty good about yourself? are you feeling a little more discouraged? Because you might have some friends in the room. Because I want to submit to you that the Bible actually feels your pain. <laughs> and knows, even perhaps more than you know, understands what it means to strive for and experiences even hindrances in our desire for change. But suffice to say, by way of introduction, that the Bible's desire for us to change is very, it's far more than just a superficial exercise. Jesus is wanting to give us a model here in John chapter 15 for a way to produce long-lasting change that is so much more than the kind of light pruning that we thought we need that kind of brought us here this morning. You know, a lot of times we came to church because like, you know, I could use a little church. <laughs> Things are not going so well with me and so maybe we could just kind of clean up a couple spots here and there. That's fine. We're glad you're here no matter what your motive. But it may very well be that the Bible has a view of you that's a little more complicated. Maybe a little more profound. Maybe more long-lasting. And so what we get... In Christianity is a little bit like what inception is, that God is coming to implant an idea in the deepest parts of your imagination, that once owned, once grasped, once sort of, uh, of bought into, it produces long-lasting change. And so John, uh, John is giving us Jesus' description of the very mechanics of your soul, and he describes them with three images. Three images this morning as we look through this. Number one, he talks about the vine. Number two, he talks about the branch. And then number three, he talks about the fruit. Okay, so we got a vine, a branch, and fruit. First of all, the vine. So bear with me for a minute. I want you to imagine that there are two fish that are swimming through the ocean. And they happen upon a school of fish that is sort of clumped in around, listening to to a blowfish. And the blowfish is lecturing to them. And the blowfish, as they sort of draw forward, says something like this. He says, you want to know what's wrong with your life, you little guppies? What's wrong with your life is water. Water is what's keeping us down. Water is what is keeping you from being able to see how you really, really can live. And if we fish folk really could find a way to escape the confines of our water we would know a life of freedom that we could never have imagined before. Well, the two little fish get bored after a while and they start to swim away. And one of them looks up the other and says, What about that guy? The other fish goes, I know, right? And after all, what is water? You did think that was funny. I didn't know whether that joke was going to be funny or not, but you did. Think about that for a second. How would you explain to a fish what water was? It would almost be like trying to describe to a human being what air is like. You're trying to explain to your child what air is. You might say something like, well, you know, it's, it's all around us. You know, it's, it, it's, it's part of everything that we do. And, and what's most interesting about it is, is that water, for a fish, has everything that you need to flourish in life. It's perfectly suited, and you are perfectly suited for it so that you can live a perfect life. And that blowfish... Might as well be a clown fish for suggestion that you can live without it. That's a little funny. That's a little bit funny. Not a lot of funny. It's a little bit funny. But you might use analogies to say, well, you know, it's kind of like this, or it's sort of like that. Well, Christianity's fundamental teaching, and what Jesus is trying to get across to us here, is to say there is something to you that is like water to a fish. Does that make sense? Human beings, I'm not talking about religious people that came to church on Sunday morning. I'm saying its claim is about every human soul has something that is perfectly suited for your flourishing. That you are even created to know and experience and be a part of. And that is called the vine. There is a vine, Jesus says in his metaphor, that actually is the one place... That if you can tap into, there is life-giving sap there. But it's only available to you if you're connected to it. It's only there like a fish if you're in the midst of it. To try to live unattached from this very thing is actually to do so to your own peril. A number of years ago, my children uh, (coughs) received received a couple of goldfish Uh, from their uncle who had won it at the Mississippi State Fair. You can win goldfish at the Mississippi State Fair. Who knew? But he brought them home, and we took them in. My kids were so excited, and we put our fish inside a nice little fish bowl there in the kitchen. And uh, they were the delight of the family. I think we even gave them names or whatever else. I don't remember the names. And one of the reasons why I don't remember the names is because of the painful way in which our goldfish sort of met their demise. One in particular uh, disturbed us a lot where we came in the kitchen one particular morning And we looked down on the ground, and there was one of the goldfish. An apparent suicide, we assumed. (laughs) And we spent the next couple of weeks sort of speculating about the, the despairing melancholy that had come over this one fish where he decided to sort of, you know, plunge out of the water to his own demise below. But then I thought, well, maybe that wasn't it. Maybe it was just a fish who had become convinced that his problem in life was the water, and suddenly discovered that he was made for the water. And to try to live without outside, it is to invite your own danger. That's what Jesus is saying. Is that you've got to be connected to something. Now, what is he talking about being connected to? Are you ready for this? He's talking about being connected to him. That is, to be deeply and intimately connected to the risen Jesus of Nazareth. Is, in the Bible's calculus... What every human being was built to know. So much so that to make an attempt to live without it is to be the source and the fountain of every dysfunction in your life. He's the vine. Jesus says, I am the vine. Unless you are meaningfully connected to me in a powerful way, then you will not have life. You'll have death. Now look, preacher types like myself like to say things like being meaningfully connected to the person of Christ. And we have no idea what that actually means. Bear with me for a moment. But I simply want to establish in this first point that walking with God is like water to a fish. He's the vine, number one. Number two, we then find out that there's not just a vine, but there is a branch. You and I, human beings, are the branch. And what Jesus is saying is, is there's a mechanism inside, again, every living soul, not just religious people at church on Sunday morning, who are drawing life-giving sap from something. Notice I use my words carefully, something. Doesn't mean what they're supposed to but from something. And the Bible calls that mechanism inside of the human person the heart. Proverbs chapter 4 verse 23 says this, Keep your heart with all vigilance. Watch for it. Guard it. Be careful about it. For from it flow the very springs of life. All of the springs of life, the stuff that comes out of you, according to the Bible's description, comes from your heart. Now, we've got to spend some time establishing this, because for most of us, when we hear the word heart, we think about our emotions only. But the Bible says, actually, everything that comes out of you comes from your heart. In other words, your thinking Your feeling, your actions, your conscience, it all has its origin from a place called the heart. Your rationality, when you decide to get logical about something and sort of trust in the truths that are laid out in front of you, your logic actually goes in and checks with your heart to see about your reasoning. Now, for those of you that are philosophy majors, you realize, going, wait a minute, wait a minute, that sounds reversed. I know it does, doesn't it? But the Bible says it's true. It also says that before you have a feeling, before you sort of rage something, or whether you burst into tears over joy, your your emotions go back and check with your heart to know what it should do. It also says that before you make either the most life-changing choice or whether you just make a little mundane choice, it goes back to your heart. Above all else, guard your heart because that's where everything in your life comes from. What does he mean? It works like a branch to a vine. (laughs) Look at verse 4 in John 15. Jesus says, As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. What does it mean to abide? That sounds like one of those religious words people use. Like, y'all, we just need to go abide. What does that mean? Well, it means that you've got this thing inside of you that is locking on to stuff. And you're looking at it saying, I want this to make my life count to be meaningful, to be okay, to be right with the world. So what is it? Uh, The branch cannot live without the vine. Think about this for a second. Let's say that you go into the hospital. Some of you have been into the hospital and been the unfortunate recipient of having your food intake mechanism that we call the mouth broken or unable to be used. So what does the doctor do? The doctor goes and gets a tube. And he hooks you up to the tube. The tube is delivered here or here or wherever. And then he takes that tube and he connects it to life-giving fluids that keep you alive when your mouth intake is not working properly. Right? Well, what are we saying? The moment that someone is born, you get a tube. The question is not whether you have one. Everybody's got one. The question is, what did you hook that thing up to from the moment of your birth? You know, the early candidates are your parents. Mommy, daddy, siblings maybe are the early ones. But then you went to school and you realized there were a whole new set of rules. Like there's this teacher and then there's friends and then there's sports. Uh, yeah, and, then there's, and then there's fights among friends. And then you sort of got a little bit older and you realized that it could be you know, uh, beauty. Uh, it could be stature. It could be popularity. And here's the deal. It doesn't go away when you're old. You can still plug that tube into all kinds of things like the success of your children or maybe your career perhaps. Everyone is looking for a place to attach that tube to and eventually what happens is your life ends up getting taken over by whatever that tube is attached to. Which brings me to the third and final point. We've seen that Jesus is the vine. We are the branch because of our hearts, but then we see what fruit comes from that. Because when the Bible begins to talk about change and you changing, it is first asking you to deal with a more fundamental question. I want to submit to you this morning that one of the reasons why the struggle for change is so difficult for us is because we're trying to do it on the surface. But when we go to the Bible and ask about change in our lives, it comes to us and says, before we start talking about this thing you're wanting to deal with, we got to ask a much more fundamental question. Who are you? Like, what makes you, you? There's an identity question that's got to be settled long before we ask the change question. Why? Because you are fundamentally um, a function of whatever you are connected to at any given time. Why? Because you always turn into what you're connected to. Look, this is a huge point. (laughs) If you've ever read through the prophets in the Old Testament, you don't understand it, this is what they're saying. You will always turn into whatever you worship. You're saying worship? I thought we were talking about the tube. You know what? Same thing. The tube is your worship. That's exactly what it is. And the Bible always says the problem with idolatry, worshiping someone other than the true and living God, is that you're going to turn into the very thing you're worshiping. My favorite illustration of this comes from... um, uh, my favorite book in the Narnia, Chronicles of Narnia series by C.S. Lewis, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. It's my favorite. Uh, At one point during that movie, which they messed up, by the way, one point in the movie, uh, they had Eustace, one of the sort of bratty little children that are in Narnia for this period of time, happening upon a sort of field of dragon's gold. You remember this part in the story? And, of course, Eustace, being someone who misbehaves all the time, reaches down and grabs him a little something. And what happens to him? He turns into a dragon himself. Now, the movie made some sort of uh, suggestion to discuss, oh, because it was, it was enchanted gold. The gold was mysterious. No. Lewis, in the book, read the book, kids, actually tells us the reason why he turned into a dragon. Listen to this. Sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart, he had become a dragon himself. What's he saying? You are whatever you are fixated on. Jesus said it this way in the Sermon on the Mount, For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. In other words, we're always searching for this thing that makes me, me. It's my treasure. It's what I'm locked in on. It's priceless to me. So here's the big point. In Christianity, God is sort of setting forth a way of understanding ourselves that has so much more to do with a change that is brought about through external force. We might even say external coercion, you know, change that's sort of from the outside in. Rather, Jesus is saying, I want to implant something inside of you that will create a new internal dynamic from which comes real change. I'm going to be very careful how I dive into this, because some of you have been the recipient of an experience like this, and I'm not making light of it when I use this illustration. But I want you to imagine that you experience one of those great horrors of either going home to your spouse or them coming home to you. And they meet you at the door and say, I'm done. I'm finished with this marriage. I don't love you anymore. I don't want to be married to you anymore. And in that moment, your world begins to shatter. And what happens? You decide that it's time to sort of talk it out. Maybe we can come to a different conclusion, maybe a different rationale. You might even beg and plead. You in that moment make some promises to to change. You you, you go to counseling for a certain period of time. You you, you try to clean up manageable parts of your life. And suddenly the person is okay with it. They come around. They decide, okay, we'll stay. We'll give it another try. But how long does it take? Six months? A year? Two years? Before those old habits start to creep back in. Now why did that happen? Because isn't it possible that the only reason why there was change in my marriage is because I was living with the fear of the person ending it. And once that fear was gone, suddenly I went back to my old self. Because that was seeking to change from external coercion. Hey, by the way, if you're saying to yourself, okay, all right, so therefore, to have a happy marriage, just let them know that I'll leave them in any moment. No, no. That's a whole other problem, problem there. I just simply want you to recognize that we never change as long as slavish fear is this thing compelling it. We change when all of a sudden there's something different on the inside of us, something deeply motivating us on the inside. Look, the only thing motivating us, if all it is is fear of what God will do if we don't follow Him, then in the end, there will never be any true lasting change. What if there was something that Jesus could establish in us that so would implant itself in the deepest parts of our heart that it would totally rearrange how I think about everything on the inside. And I hope you're thinking to yourself, okay, let's have been talking about this. What is it? You ready for this? It is Jesus' love for you in the Gospel. And one of the reasons why our change fails is because we change that to be Jesus' toleration of us in the Gospel. Instead of His love for us in the gospel. Jesus is saying once that comes in, it renovates everything. Look, I'm one of those people who was deeply convinced, and I still am, that when I got married to Ginger, I got the much better end of the deal. You ever felt that way with your spouse? Been kind of like, oof. They made some sacrifices here that I did not. And what was weird was in the months after we got married, my students in RUF began to come back and talk about how I was changing. You know, you're different. Like, I got to know, you're nicer. Your preaching's better. I don't know what that was about. You changed. But here's the funny thing. It wasn't a change because I thought to myself, okay, I'm married. It's time to get your life together here. Uh, you know, or um, you know, it's time to really put your nose to the grindstone lesson. Be a different person. No, the truth was, I still was just kind of walking around freaked out that she would say yes to marry me. That, I think, is what the Bible is getting at for us. So here's my question for you as we finish this, this morning. What is your change plan? You're reading some books. you on a diet. Did you join this church? Is that part of your change plan? And so my question is, what is the fruit that you see, or better yet, what other people see coming out of you in the midst of those efforts? In other words, how's it working for you, <laughs> that pattern of change? What is it that you're becoming in this life? I'm willing to recognize it for many of us. We joined this church so that people wouldn't ask us that question. You ever thought about that? Sometimes attendance at church itself can be a way of keeping people from ever asking the question. Well, of course I'm a Christian. I mean, I joined Christ Presbyterian Church. Oftentimes it can be a very sophisticated strategy to keep from the question ever even arising. Is that possible? But look, I simply want to give you some encouragement that Jesus actually does not have a superficial life plan for you as a matter of fact there's places where Jesus says I I will not stop until I have you happy and holy with me and here's the thing he always gets his way for some of you that's terrifying and it ought to be for others of you it's incredibly comforting and it ought to be that too one last thought before I close. I realize that when people come in and say, okay, so you're saying Jesus loves me and that's supposed to make me change. I know that. I've known that since I was a kid. I don't, that really strikes me that big. Well, you know what? There's one last little piece of this passage here that you might want to look, look at. When Jesus looks at the very end and talks about those unfruitful branches and what they're useful for, which is nothing, just be thrown away and burned. If you get the analogy, that'll make you a little uncomfortable. Because you sometimes can feel awfully unproductive. Like I do. All the time. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What's that whole burning thing here? Is he talking about hell? But here's the thing. Please understand something. That over and over again in the Scripture, the Bible talks about Jesus, when He was on the cross, being cut off from His people. And what the prophets and the apostles understood was that Jesus on the cross was cut off because He was becoming Himself that unproductive branch. He was taking on the punishment himself so that when the fires approach us of judgment, they meet nothing. A couple of years ago, I met with a student who had spent a summer doing forestry work out west. And I sat down with him after it was over in the fall, and I was like, dude, what would you do all summer? He's like, well, we did a lot of controlled burns. I was like, what's a controlled burn? He goes, well, when a forest fire is kind of sweeping across, what you can do is get a little bit ahead of it And what we would do is we would do a small fire that would sort of consume what it needed to consume, but we would create this band around all the residential areas so that when the fires would come and start to sweep through and they got to that band, they would go out. You want to know why? Because the earth had already been scorched there. See where that's going? What do you do when the fires of judgment come next to you and you feel like an unproductive vine? We look and we say, you know what? It can't reach me. Because on the cross, Jesus was scorched by His Father. And because I am in Him and I abide in Him, the fires of judgment don't reach me. What does it look like to change? What does it look like to be a group of people who that little solitary act that the more we take into our hearts, the more we're different? What would that look like? Maybe we would become a place of change let's pray and Lord Jesus start in us start in us now implant in us that inception that simple idea that we could be something different than we are now something that is happy something that is holy something that is set apart from the rest of a world who seems hell-bent on destruction make us father an island of rescued people from the things that we would have done had we not met you would you do that